I used to spend long periods staring up at the stars in the country with my father. He was very interested in astronomy and he used to trot out the star charts and test us on constellations. And I always wondered what you had to do to get some heavenly body named after you. Do you just have to pay the right people or do you have to actually put in years of work and discover something? Two Australian astronomers have just had their names immortalised in recognition of their work in space research, which sounds very fair. Professor Jonty Horner is one of them. Jonty, welcome and congratulations. Good morning. Thank you very much. It was a lovely bit of news that's kind of made my year, to be honest. Well, yeah. How does it feel to know there's this, this thing whizzing around in space, potentially forever, with your name on it? Well, it's taking a good long time settling because when I was a kid, I've been interested in astronomy since I was kind of knee high. And when I was a kid, all these fabulous science communicators and great astronomers have asteroids named after them. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. I thought it was brilliant. And I never in a million years made that connection to something that could happen to me. It was always something of the people I admired and a tie to that kind of history and stuff like that. So it was a bit of a surprise. And uh, you know, just a fabulous thing to happen, really. Well, and when I thought about what I knew about how those objects in the sky are named, I just assumed they were named by powerful people after other powerful people. And then I discovered that Uranus was nearly called George. <laughs> I realised I knew nothing about how this process works. Tell us what happens these days. How How are objects in the sky named? Well, different types of objects have different naming conventions, and this is all managed by the International Astronomical Union, which is kind of the professional body for astronomers worldwide. That's kind of the people who make things official. And it depends on what kind of object you're talking about, about what the naming convention is. So the most possibly obscure and least exciting are planets around other stars, which is somewhere I do a lot of my work. And we know a star in the night sky, and that star will either have a name, which goes back to the Arab astronomers, or it'll have a catalogue number from one of a number of different catalogues. And when a planet's found around that star, it gets a letter B with the lowercase. So a really good example here is there's a star with the catalogue number HR8799, which is already not that exciting. It's got four planets that have been found around it, and they're B, C, D, and E. <laughs> so this kind of tells you the audio they were discovered in. B was the first that was found, C was the second that was found. So it's useful, but it's not sexy. It, yeah, and that's true of a lot of the simpler naming stuff with astronomy. Now, the International Astronomical Union is slowly trying to change that, and they're gradually naming some of the planets that we're finding and some of the stars as a kind of global enterprise. They're opening up the naming to different countries. And for that reason, we recently had a star on a planet named Banksia and Wattle, which were names proposed by a Melbourne school. So Aww. we're getting that kind of global thing. Yeah, that's quite sweet. Well, and when it comes to asteroids, I understand that there's a few guidelines, but you've got a bit more room for creativity, haven't you? There is. Now, the first few asteroids that were discovered way back in the early 1800s were thought to be planets. And so they were named following that same naming convention after the Roman gods. So you've got Ceres, Pallas, Juno, Vesta, and so on. And then you went through a period where more and more of these things were being discovered. And the naming was a bit slapdash. It was basically, you discover it, you name it. More recently, there's kind of almost a three-tiered approach to the names. So when an asteroid is first discovered, it just gets a catalogue number, a bit like a car registration plate. That tells you the year in which it was discovered. It tells you which fortnight within the year it was found, and then it tells you which number discovery it was within that fortnight. So the asteroid that now has my name was called 2001 OG73. And that to an astronomer tells you exactly when it was discovered, and it's a unique identifier. So like I said, that's a bit like your car number plate. 
When the asteroid has been studied a bit more, we've got a bit more detail and we can predict well into the future and well into the past where it would be. So we've got no risk of losing it. We basically know how well it's moving. It gets given a number. It becomes what we call a numbered asteroid. And in my case, this is 32520. So that asteroid then became, in brackets, 32520 and then 2001 OG73. And then the final stage of the naming is when a little bit more is known about it. There's a big list of them. And every year at the big conference that happens, I think it happened in the US this year in around June time, they announce a new batch of names. And these names are proposed by people all around the world through the astronomy community. So we had an Australian set of names that were nominated by Hadrian Devilquois, who's one of the leaders of the Fireball Network, a, a network of cameras all across Australia studying rocks from space. And he was kind enough to reach out to me and say, you don't have an asteroid. Would you like to be nominated? Because your work's been brilliant. And I said, well, of course I would. That yes. would be awesome. Um, and I said, well, maybe you should also think about Tim, who did his PhD with me. Because he's done awesome work as well. So our names went into the ring. And we both got asteroids, which is just awesome. So the asteroid is now 32520 John T. Horner. Ah, oh, fantastic. Well, yeah, obviously there's a lot of asteroids still in process. It must be quite a, a busy little uh, night sky when it comes to designations. I want to read you this text that's come in, Jonty Horner. We had a star named in honour of the loss of a child in our family, says Maria in Katoomba. Knowing Harry's star is there forever is something that forms part of our ongoing healing. And I know lots of people find it just a, such a special idea that they can uh, pay to get a, a heavenly body named after someone in their family. Uh, how legit are those sites in terms of the scientific naming? Do they those names end up on official star maps, for example? It's a really difficult one. And, you know, my heart goes out to people with their loss, and I totally understand going through something like that to commemorate it. Unfortunately, those names are in, in no way official. They do still bring peace and comfort to people, and, you know, I'd never argue against that. But they're not names that are all affiliated with the International Astronomical Union, so they're not in any way official. I guess it's a bit like me in a crossway getting a map of Australia and saying you can buy a city name for yourself and I'll send you a certificate which with a picture of your city and the information and your name on it. And you could say, well, I want to buy Brisbane and I'll call it Tim. And then you get a certificate with Tim on you and get the details and where it is, but it's still called Brisbane. It's one of those things, and it's really difficult to talk about because for people who put their money in this, it's a wonderful way to remember someone and to honour their memory. But unfortunately, it isn't an official name in any way. It doesn't diminish the value of it to the people, but yeah. Well, yeah, I guess as long as they're being informed that that's the situation as they go into it, then then that yes. is fine. Do you know much about your asteroid, Jonty, how, how big it is or what's in it? We know a little bit. Now, it's actually quite challenging to learn about these asteroids. We know more than a million things out there in our solar system now, and that number's just going up astronomically quickly, if you pardon the pun. It's going up faster <laughs> and faster. This thing that is named after me is a small speck out in the asteroid belt. Even at its closest to the Earth, it's still 200 million kilometres away. And so all we see through even our biggest telescopes is a single point of light, and we've got to disentangle everything we know from the light we receive from it. And what has been worked out about it over the 20 odd years since it was discovered is how it moves around the sun. We know that fairly well. We, we know the path it follows. We know roughly what size it is, and it's thought to be about four kilometers in diameter. And it seems to be unusually shiny. It seems to be more reflective than your typical asteroid. And that to me is really interesting 
because it could mean one of a number of things. It could mean that there is ice on the surface, which would be very, very cool. It could mean it's a more metallic object and therefore a bit more shiny. But we don't know much more than that. And it's simply because of the enormity of the solar system, how far away these things are and how small they are. To know more, we'd really need to get a spacecraft to go there or we need to get a lot more observations to build up our knowledge base. So we can essentially find the answer. I can't wait to see the Jonty Horner rover heading out (laughs) to see how that's That would be awesome. Yeah. So this shininess, and I I wonder if it does have something uh, valuable and metallic in it. Are you worried that someone might try to mine it? Who owns it? Who owns asteroids? The ownership's really weird. Now, there are a number of kind of global laws, but the use of space is really mainly governed by the 1967 Space Treaty, which is very outdated. And there are a lot of concerted efforts to argue that things beyond the Earth are not owned. Nobody can claim them, nobody can own them. But this is still something I think that has yet to be tested. And there are people out there who are far better experts in space law, which, believe it or not, is now a a rapidly growing discipline as our use of space has become much more pronounced and much more important in day-to-day life. But in terms of things being mined, I'm actually really positive about that. I think that the future of off-Earth mining, this getting resources from places that are not the Earth, is actually a really promising thing for humanity. Now, these asteroids, not necessarily mine, but the asteroids that are floating around the solar system are resource-rich. They have lots of minerals in them. They have things that on Earth are relatively uncommon in the crust, can be common if you pick the right asteroid. So rare Earth minerals, which are um, rare Earth metals, which are a core centrepiece of the smartphones that we use are quite scarce in the Earth's crust, but they're very unpleasant to extract. And they're relatively common in some of the asteroids that are out there. So from my point of view, if you can go out there and mine them off Earth, you don't have to mine them on Earth. So you're simultaneously getting a better supply of them from places where they're easier to access. And you're getting rid of the what is incredibly polluting and incredibly toxic ways that we have to extract them here on Earth. And it just sounds like a win-win to me. Though I'm sure it's going to be driven by entrepreneurship and private enterprise, and that might uh, bring up some of those space law issues that you mentioned before. Jonty, just before we wrap up, what about satellites? I mean, we we cannot live without them now. We rely on them from everything from getting to the shops to, you know, high-level communications. But I do think of Sandra Bullock and George Clooney in Gravity and uh, the threat they might pose. Are you worried about that proliferation in space? It's something we need to keep an eye on, and it's really something there's a lot of debate about. The rate at which things are being put up into space has risen dramatically over the last few years, primarily thanks to SpaceX and Elon Musk. And that use of space is still a bit like the Wild West. There's not really any global agency controlling it or with any way of slowing it down or managing it. And so there's just an increasing amount of stuff being put up there. And on the one hand, It's doing a wonderful job of improving life. You know, there's people out in Australia who have Starlink for their internet and it's really improved their quality of life. It's really important. But at the same time, all these satellites up there are obscuring our view of everything else. They're brightening the night sky and they're causing huge problems to astronomers, but also they're polluting the night sky, causing light pollution around the world, which is a big deal for cultures who have a really intimate connection to country and to the sky, where the night sky is really important and they don't really have any say in what's happening. So there's kind of this big cultural global debate going on in the astronomy community about how we manage those competing interests best and what we can do to actually get this legislated and controlled so that it's done properly. We're not saying don't launch satellites, that would be churlish, I think, but we're saying it should be looked at 
and we should try and find a happy medium that gets the best outcome for the biggest number of people well, rather than favouring the benefits of one another. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just thinking, you know, as, as we wrap up, Jonty, uh, in that context, is it a problem that the federal government's just cut a number of key space programs and seems to be investing less in this space? It's a really difficult one. I mean, space is, despite what people think, it's actually an incredibly good investment. NASA, in the 70 years, 80 years it's been going, has without fail every year returned at least 10 to 1 on its investment. So for every dollar the government has put in, they've got $10 back into the economy. And that, to be honest, is why most governments around the world are engaging in space. They see the return, they see the new technology that gets developed. It was disappointing to see those things being cut back. I understand that governments have budgets to manage. And, you know, me as a scientist, I'd just say, give us all the money for science and that will probably not end very well. (laughs) Um, You know, these things would have had benefits, but, you know, it's not my place to make those policies, fortunately. And to be honest, I'm quite glad of that. I'd rather do the science I love than have to worry about finding the budgets and all the rest of it. Gosh, yes. Imagine being a politician. No, thank you. Jonty, it's been great chatting with you today. Congratulations again on having this very shiny 200 million kilometre away asteroid named after you. Thanks for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Jonty Horner, Professor of Astrophysics at the University of Southern Queensland. And I spoke to him after he'd had that asteroid named after him in August last year. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.